0: Good morning, it's good to see all of you this week. Uh, If you haven't already, please be turning with me again in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 5. We again now turn to focus on verses 16 to 26 as a unit. And this morning we're going to finish doing what we started last week, which was to be looking carefully at Paul's list of the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21. Uh, For those who were not here last week, let's just recap a bit, or really for all of us to be refreshed. Uh, When Paul names here the works of the flesh, he is describing the works that arise naturally out of our natural selves. The Bible calls this sinful nature the old man, and it stands opposed to the new man that is created in God's people through regeneration through the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. Unless and until you come to Christ, your life is lived, according to Ephesians 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, being lived in the passions of our flesh. It's how we are described in our totality, outside of Christ. And the works that accompany this life, we saw last week, are works that come out of that sinful nature. And their origin is not in our circumstances. It's in us. Now, these are the things that we do because we want to do them. When a person is born again, when a person is rescued from their sins by Jesus Christ, he makes us alive spiritually. And then the rest of our lives is easy and flesh-free as a result. Is that what we've seen, see a little test there at the beginning to see who's, who's with us and who's not. That's not at all what we have seen. <laughs> uh, instead, we've seen really the opposite of that, that the rest of our lives as believers is then a war-torn path of two natures doing battle against the other, each one trying to prevent the other from succeeding. We saw that in verse 17. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. A statement that applies to both of those natures. We ended last week by acknowledging that the goal behind these desires, uh, these choices, these actions, the goal of the sinful flesh is self-enthronement. That's the goal. And this is really where we will look very carefully this morning. Now, I could give you something of an overview statement for what we're going to see in our time here. And it would be this. The works of the flesh that Paul lists here in verses 19 to 21 are a representative list showing that in every realm of human interaction, the desire of the flesh is self-enthronement. Whether the realm be personal autonomy, relationship to God, relationship to other individuals, or relationship to society around us. Each of those four realms we find represented in this list of works that Paul presents. So let's begin here by reading again verses 16 to 26, uh, and I'm going to try to put a pause between each of those four realms so as to make them more obvious when we get to verses 19 to 21, so you can listen for that. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26. envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, one thing we need to understand as we begin this morning is that Paul is doing a bit of painting here. If you're one of the more creative types among us, more artistic, maybe you'll appreciate that. He's painting a picture here. Uh, And he does this lots of times. Uh, For those that he writes to exhort or encourage, for those that he is pastoring uh, in the churches that he writes to, he paints this picture a lot. This is a picture of fleshly living. What's that look like? He paints that picture for the Romans. He paints it for the Corinthians several times. He paints the picture here for the Galatians. He paints it for the Ephesians, for the Colossians. He paints a couple of these pictures to Timothy. And he paints one for Titus, too, in Titus 3, 3. And since they're all paintings of the fleshly life, of the life lived according to the flesh, you'd expect they all have some things in common. They all have similarities to them. But they never look exactly the same, these paintings. And, in fact, some of them look quite different from others that he paints. Uh, He will often tailor the picture that he's painting according to the struggles of that particular church. And we'll see this morning he definitely does that here with the Galatians. Now what's important about knowing that is that we notice the words at the end of the list. Look down for just a minute at how this list ends in verse 21. Verse 21 gives the last three terms, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And what does it end with then? Do You see that it says, and things like these why it's important for us to recognize the realms that he is describing here, these four realms, because it lets us uh, ask what we're going to ask several times this morning, uh, what else might be in this list, this realm? Uh, How do these works of self-enthronement manifest themselves in my life or in our context? Some of these things don't look exactly the same in their manifestations today as they might have at times in the past. Understanding the fact that he's painting these pictures frees us up to think in those ways. So we'll seek to do that in each of these realms that we're working through. The first realm that he describes is the realm of personal autonomy. And specifically, you could think of it this way, the realm of what I will do with my own body. Do this, if you would, for just a moment. It won't take us long, but keep your finger here. Uh, Flip over to 1 Corinthians 6.19, just for a moment. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, this is where we read at the very end of verse 19, uh, Paul's statement to this effect. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You remember when he has said that? You're not your own. You were bought with a price if you are in Christ Jesus. So glorify God in your body. The reason I'm asking you to look there, that wouldn't be a hard thing for you to hear me read. That's pretty short. But what I'd like you to do is just glance up at the paragraph that that uh, ends there. What are the things you see him dealing with in that paragraph? There's a couple of things. Uh, he, He deals with the notions of gluttony and sexual immorality. Not just sexual immorality, but this, con- this issue of food and sinful use of food. These are matters of personal autonomy in what I will do with my own body. To whom do I belong? Who, is the, who provides the criteria of why my body exists and how I ought to use it? And these two, in 1 Corinthians 6 here in that paragraph, are also just two examples. Now, you could put a number of other things in that category, couldn't you? Of of of, of autonomous decisions. You could put, for example, the matters of slothfulness versus industriousness in that category pretty easily. You could put the issue of drunkenness in there as well. Now, you'll see later why I think in Galatians 5, I think... When Paul mentions drunkenness, he's talking really about the social realm. uh, But clearly, drunkenness could belong in this category itself as well, couldn't it? Remember, he's saying in each of these categories, things like these. Now, in Galatians 5.19, you can come back over there. He sums up this realm, personal autonomy, with the first three terms that we see in the list. Verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now this list, like like the others that we'll see, uh, has words with some overlap in meaning. It's it's difficult and unwise to necessarily separate them uh, altogether from one another. And it does seem that he gives us these three words intentionally to create a particular picture. For example, he uses these very same three words in the same way in 2 Corinthians 12, 21. The fact, though, that they're not three exact synonyms of each other actually helps us in that because there seems to be a bit of a progression from one to the next. The three together really do create a picture for us to take notice of. The first word, sexual immorality, is the word porneia. This is a word that is very uh, commonly used by Paul and and within uh, the New Testament. Um, this word has some uh, specific meanings to it. F.F. Bruce calls them near technical meanings. So the word can be used in some context to talk about particular sexual sins. Uh, one of those being in the book of Matthew and elsewhere, the sin of sexual unfaithfulness during a, an engagement period in J- Jewish culture. They use this word specifically for that. They also use it in reference to incest in a particular way. And they're drawing that right out of the Old Testament and the the way that it's used there. So the book of Acts and uh, in in 1 Corinthians, um, Luke and Paul use it in that specific way. But that's rare. Uh, By and large, this word denotes uh, something very broad. This word speaks to the entire category of sin in the sexual realm, porneia. It's important to understand that because that means, and if that's what he's talking about here, that means that we are, as he names this as a work of the flesh, we're already beyond the realm of mere external behavior with word number one. Pornea is not a category that starts in the external world. Where does it start? It starts here, and it starts here. Jesus made clear in the Sermon on the Mount that sexual immorality begins in the mind. So we're already beyond simply the external and the visible. So you have with that word as a work of the flesh, you have all manifestations of sin in this particular realm. Add to that then the second word, the word impurity, which the focus there is on the state of defilement that comes with these sorts of sins. Defilement generated by sin in the sexual realm. Uh, One described it this way, quote, the tendency of vice to spread its corrupting influence. So you have have sexual immorality, which as it is engaged in, immediately and progressively corrupts by its influence, creating impurity. Now add to that the third word in this list. This word is the word sensuality. That translation in the ESV can can sound a lot less specific than it actually is. The Holman Christian Bible translates it promiscuity. The, The NIV translates it debauchery. It's described in this way, quote, Vice that throws off all restraint and flaunts itself, unawed by shame or fear. Vice without regard for public decency. Do you detect what's, what is added to this picture with that third word? This is not just another word to describe uh, immorality in this realm. This is a word that describes the effect of sin, of, in, in, in this particular context, this realm of sin, uh, that leads our hearts to grow hard, callous, indifferent. And where there once was shame, there now begins to be flaunting. There now begins to be pride. Vice without regard for public decency. And my suggestion to you this morning is that these words are used to create a singular picture for us. And maybe you have it in your mind already. Practices of sexual immorality that repeatedly produce a state of defilement or impurity. And what do they do to us? In spite of what our heart tells us not to worry about. They increasingly sear our conscience. It happens immediately and it happens progressively as we do not repent and run away from sin. So that in in that very way that these deeds are typically done under the cover of darkness, this person increasingly loses that shame. Now how does that apply to our cultural setting today? I think there's probably not been a realm of human history that it hasn't had very obvious and immediate application and we're no exception, are we? There are some really blatant easy to see examples of this threefold picture. The entire LGBTQ agenda has sort of embodied this progression, hasn't it? Both by dis- by defining itself in terms of uh, flamboyant displays of throwing off sexual and gender norms, according to Scripture, but also in the way that it has intentionally worked to uh, bring the sins of homosexuality into common everyday discourse and conversation. It's really shocking to hear how intentional that plan was. I was reminded of it recently uh, because Al Mohler on his, uh, his daily briefing retraced some of the published I mean, out there for you to go buy on Amazon right now, very intentional plans from the 80s and 90s to this effect, to so speak about and bring into common parlance these things that the general uh, sensitivities would, would go down. So some examples of this sort of trajectory are quite in our face. Others are more subtle, but maybe are even more common. Than that. Like the person, I wonder if this has been you. Or if you think of someone right now that you know and love and are praying for. Or if this is you now. It's another perfect example of this picture that we have. This person starts off feeling shame about some manifestation of sexual sin. Pornography, sex outside of marriage, infidelity, so that they hide that sin. They don't impudently parade that sin before others. But inside, they are slowly building their case. They're not working to remain humble. They're working to slowly build their own case as to why what they're doing really isn't that big a deal. You can imagine maybe two individuals, both struggling In a long-term struggle, perhaps, with the same sin. And yet what's going on inside of those two individuals could not be more different. One, working to maintain a soft heart. Guarding his own conscience from becoming seared. Regularly thankful for counsel and reaching out that they receive. The other... Progressively justifying and excusing himself more and more. And progressively coming to resent the involvement from other people who care about him. Now what's the fundamental difference between these two individuals according to Paul in our passage? Well for the first one, for that first individual, there are principles, two, plural. Principles of living at war with one another. The spirit desiring against the flesh, the flesh desiring against the spirit. And there are spiritual fruits that keep rearing their head amid the process. For the other one, while there may have been some remorse shown at points, what time is doing is time is showing there to be only one active principle of living in that person's life, and that is the flesh. This is precisely the point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 7 when he compares worldly sorrow to godly sorrow. There is such a profound distance between these two individuals tempted by the same sin when one is willing to call it sin and to wage war and the other has grown eventually so comfortable as to celebrate it and to argue that there's nothing to be ashamed of. You see, I think, in that, that exemplary list, again, this is, this, is, this is not an exhaustive list of personal autonomy. There are other manifestations of this in this realm. But you see in this representative list the trend of the flesh. He continues in verse 20, coming into the second realm now, uh, the realm of relationship to God. He continues with two more words. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Next, idolatry, sorcery. Sorcery is not a concept that we talk about much or that, uh, <laughs> that we're just readily familiar with, perhaps. Right? Uh, idolatry may be a little bit easier or more uh, within our reach. Idolatry, directing our trust and worship towards something other than God. Sorcery, this is a word, the word he uses is pharmakia, it's just almost pharmacy. Uh, uh, and that's because originally it had to do with using the use of drugs for medical purposes. It was not a, ba- a negative word originally. By the time uh, of the New Testament era, it's already uh, developed in terms of its range of meaning. Uh, they used the word in those times to refer especially to two things. Uh, one poisoning somebody, so that's no—it's not positive at all. Um, and second, the the use of drugs in uh, magical practices, and therefore, really, the, the the word came to simply refer to those magical practices. Does that make sense? This is how this is how words uh, develop. Uh, what is cast off in both of those situations—idolatry, sorcery—what is cast off from the person? is any sense of creatureliness on the part of the flesh. I've not been created expressly for the glory of a particular other, and I will give my worship to whatever I judge to be worthwhile, or whatever I judge to be most beneficial to me. I won't be content with the providential sovereignty of God in what he chooses to bring my way. No. No. I will do what I can to manipulate the outcomes and secure the future that I desire for myself. I'm going to delve into the use of witchcraft, magic, these sorts of things, if it will change my circumstances in a way that I find pleasing. And rest assured, in Paul's time, magical practices was not a small industry. In Acts Chapter 19, a revival breaks out in Ephesus, and it says in verse 19 of that chapter that many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. No small industry going on here. When I don't like the direction that things seem to be heading, I will depend on those forbidden sources other than God. To secure my safety and my security. An idol, I've heard it well described as anything I'm willing to sin in order to get. Or plan to sin in response to not getting. Now let's take that concept and what we've seen with both of these words. Let's apply the things like these test to this category idolatry and sorcery. Maybe most necessary in this category because I can't remember the last time I fashioned an idol out of stone or metal or any other such thing. Um, I don't believe I've ever engaged in a particular magical practice to my knowledge. Uh, Things like these. What would this category contain in our context? Probably as I asked that question, some very good answers are coming up in your mind. What are the things that I'm willing to sin in order to get? Or will sin if I don't get? What are the things that are, I so cherish that I will move into my own sphere and work against God's providence if it seems that he's not going to give it to me? Well, might we discover a sense of security in the amassing of wealth on this earth? It has to be a question that the uh, 21st century in the West, we, we, surely we can't come to this concept and not consider and wrestle with that reality. I'm not at all talking about turning foolishness into a virtue. That would be sin, right? And the Bible tells us to plan and to save for the future and to look to the ant, you sluggard. But maybe the question is this, is the sense of safety, that that 401 provides so important to you that you are willing to sin if it gets threatened? What if it becomes financially perilous to be an open and faithful Christian? Related category, uh, might we discover that we are sinfully addicted to comfort? even physical comfort, but situational comfort. I will obey the commands of God unless I come into a situation of discomfort that seems that it will last more than three weeks. Now I have to consider my options because apparently nobody is taking care of me. I mean, from Tylenol to no-fault divorce, we are masters at avoiding discomfort. Aren't we? Not that Tylenol and no-fault divorce are in the same ethical category at all, and I'm not condemning the use of Tylenol. But what if confessing the name of Christ comes to make my life uncomfortable and come to find out I'm quite addicted to comfort? If I'm willing to sin to keep it, I'm an idolater. The third realm that we look at, I'll ask you to jump down for a moment to verse 21. We look at the realm of relationship to society. I actually want to bypass the next eight words on the list here and leave them for last. And I'll explain why when we get there. But looking down to verse 21, we find the final two words on Paul's list. You see envy, but the last two are these. Drunkenness. And orgies. That second word is translated in other uh, versions with things like carousing and wild parties. It's the word that Paul uses to describe the pagan lifestyle of Gentiles before conversion. 1 Peter 4.3, he said, for the, time, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in debauchery, passions, drunkenness, carousing. That's this word drinking parties and lawless idolatry is just another list of things like these describing what the gentiles love to do this is how they love to live within their society these two words point in particular to a dissolute social life one has given himself or herself over to a wild living and in a very obvious way, then, has given full reign to his flesh. Now, what's the problem with this? Turn with me here. I, I just read 1 Peter 4 3. Look over there. Let me read the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. What is the problem with this choice of living? 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 1. Do you see the problem that he names there? The whole problem here is that we are not to live for human passions. Remember Ephesians 2.3? We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That characterizes us when we are dead in sin. Fallen man. Without the redemption that is purchased by Christ Jesus, fallen man, unregenerate, lives for himself. He lives the life of a creature who thinks he is a God. Redeemed man lives the life of a creature who knows that he is a creature and who lives for others. Who lives for his Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the people of his Lord. And for the mission that his Lord has put him on in this world. We read in weeks past Galatians 5, 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But here's the alternative. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do You see where he is telling us. The life lived in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. You see how it manifests itself. 2 Corinthians 5.15 He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Where the flesh is operative, where the flesh reigns, one's social living is simply another manifestation, Of a self-enthroned life. And it fits the description that Paul began this with. The works of the flesh are evident. It is not hard to see. As my life manifests either a life lived for myself. Or a life lived according to some other purpose and calling. Now this leads us to the last category. The one that we have saved for last. It's really the third. Uh, This category is the eight words that span verses 20 and 21. This is the realm of relationship to others. You see verse 20 begin with idolatry and sorcery. Next we read these descriptions. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Now I've saved these for last. Because, as many have noticed, there are reasons to see these eight, this category, as being Paul's particular focus relating to the Galatians. After all, not only does this realm take up more than half, if you're going to be technical about it, eight of the 15 terms, pointing to sins that disrupt Christian fellowship. But there's also something unique about these eight. The other seven that we've already seen are fairly common. Uh, on other vice lists in the New Testament. Paul, as I've said, paints this picture a lot, and it looks different. The other seven words are quite common to see uh, in and among those other lists. But these eight are detailing a behavior that's actually uncommon to find emphasized in such lists. I don't mean that none of these words appear in there, but they do infrequently, and they do not in any way with the kind of concentration that we find here. Uh, th- this, this argument I'm making that he's really focusing this to the Galatians um, is supported as well if you look at what bookends the lists regarding flesh and spirit and the works of flesh and spirit. What came right before he started this? And what does he say right after? Well, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And then he moves into this section about walking by the spirit as opposed to the flesh. And then verse 26, ending this, what does he focus on? Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see, this sort of interpersonal battling that he describes in this category seems to be a big element of what the Galatians are dealing with in particular. Now, let's say a couple of things about the words themselves Um, There is not a need to parse through the definitions of every word in this list as we have with some of the other lists. I have done that carefully, and I can tell you that these words mean what we think they mean. They are well translated. Also, there's plenty of crossover between some of these words in their meanings. And we know what strife looks like, don't we? We know how it divides people. We know what jealousy is. And we know what fits of anger are. Now, I will give you two caveats to that, two two details. Number one, when the when the when the list says rivalries, fits of anger, rivalries, it may be better put the way that the Holman Christian and the NIV put it as selfish ambition. Maybe you hear no difference. In my mind, there's something of a difference there. This word is used in places to describe. My self-centered desire to gain uh, over others. Now, When I think of rivalries, my mind goes to what some of these other words speak of. Dissensions and divisions. Maybe I'm unique in that. Uh, The second thing to say is this. When Paul says divisions here as a manifestation of the work of the flesh, he is not at all talking, I hope this goes without saying, he's not at all talking about divisions of any kind, is he? This same Paul commands the Corinthians at the end of 1 Corinthians 5 to refuse to associate with certain persons. That would be a division. Uh, He's not speaking about all divisions. These are rivalries, dissensions, divisions that the sinful flesh creates because it is not happy with how others are relating to it. These are manifestations of the flesh that come when my drive for self-enthronement comes into the realm of other people. They are not natural differences and divisions. They're manufactured differences and divisions that we force as an issue. These are differences coming directly out of love of self. And I'll just say this in a general way uh, this morning. This is exactly why, at its heart, there are many reasons, but this would be one of them why the entrance in recent years into the church of a woke theology, the uh, emergence of a critical race theory in the church, uh, is so contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what it does, by definition, is it manufactures the very definitions that Jesus Christ died to remove. We are not a people who seek out division. And who create ones that the gospel has torn down. So there are types of dissensions and divisions that have arisen out of a sinful flesh. And when other people enter the mix, I mean just think about your, your, uh, any given day in your life. At The moment that others enter your sphere, enter the mix in your life, what comes with them? Differences come with them. Uh, Maybe differences of opinion, differences of circumstance, differences of priority. Someone else enters my sphere and I have an idea that strikes them as a bad idea or at least not worthy of action. I have a personality that's different from yours. I have an opinion or a conviction that you either disagree with or don't feel as strongly about as I do. Those differences just happen, don't they? They are inevitable results of human interaction. It's important for us to understand, it is not the presence of a difference or a disagreement itself that produces these works. These works are the product of such a situation with difference or disagreement when self-enthronement is my driving priority. In other words, this is what verse 15's biting and devouring each other looks like. My set stance on the path was not one of serving others. It was not one of being a vessel of love to others. It was a self-stance of self-enthronement. And when I am there, and these differences or disagreements arise, I will bite, I will devour to get you out of my way on my journey to self-enthronement. I mean, you could think of it this way. None of these displays need be in my personal relationships if everybody around me will only bow down and worship me. That's all it would take. I would never have to deal with, en- with enmity or envy or jealousy or a fit of anger interpersonally speaking, if everyone around me would only bow down and worship me. Now then, does the Bible tell us anything about what love of others will do in the presence of difference and disagreement, by contrast? Well, you better believe it does. It's a bit unfortunate, I think, the passage that speaks most directly to that has somehow been condemned to only being let out of its cage when there is a marriage ceremony. You know what passage I'm talking about, maybe? 1 Corinthians 13 speaks to this specifically. It's amazing how very interpersonally experienced are the terms in in, in 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Listen to this list again. And in a non-marriage context, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. No wonder that the fruit of the Spirit that we will begin seeing next week Begins with the word love. Now as I've said, walking by the Spirit will not create homogeny amongst a group of people. It does not erase differences or disagreements. But as we look next week at the fruit of the Spirit, we'll see that just like the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is very much dominated with fruit that is others directed and others experienced. Not unlike the list I just read in 1 Corinthians 13. I can be patient with difference and disagreement. Because I'm growing into the image of Christ. I can be kind and gentle because I'm growing into the image of Christ. I don't have to sit in shadows and grumble to myself resentfully. I can enter the light and communicate with that other person kindly and patiently because the Spirit of God is at work in me and He is working to conform me to the image of Christ. I will not tear that person down behind their back. I will work to honor that person and protect their reputation if only because they are an image bearer of the God whose Spirit is directing me and He is conforming me to the image of Christ. So it's it's just a question that we must ask as we are confronted with God's word when it speaks to this issue. Where is that difference or that disagreement you're in the midst of where God's word is confronting you this morning? We say he speaks to us in his word. He's speaking to you now. There are many things he needs to say to me and to you. This is what he's saying to me and to you now. Are we listening? I'm so thankful. Aren't you so thankful for the season that we're in right now as a body? I mean, this is a season of tremendous unity and peace and loving fellowship that we're enjoying right now. It's a gift from God, and it is not always going to be like this at every moment in the future, is it? A local church is a family. And families, simply because they are quite involved in each other's lives, have times of tension, have differences arise, have disagreements arise. Even offenses. We've had them in our past in this church history. Anyone here belonged to other churches in the past where interpersonal issues have arisen? I'm quite sure that there is no church that exists unless one started last week maybe they've managed, that has not had some interpersonal issues arise. The mere fact that times like that come is not in and of itself even alarming. It's unavoidable. The question is, are we working to be people who have the humility and the patience and the selfless living? Not self-enthroned pursuit, the selfless living to honor the Lord and speak the truth in love when times arise. And, of course, the individual families represented in this room, uh, that is even a unit more basic than the unit of the church, which is something of a family of families. If we're not practicing these things in our own families, we're utterly unequipped to practice them in the community of faith. It's the kind of thing that makes us passionate to seek out the works of the flesh and put them to death. It makes us passionate to remember the mercy and forgiveness of God for his people that is ours in Christ Jesus because we all stumble in many ways. But this is what defines the path that God sets his people on. And I'll simply close by directing our attention again to verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess joyfully, gratefully, that you have spoken to us this morning. You are not a God who is silent. Your word that we hold in our hands is not an old and tired book. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, And it pierces us. Father, you have pierced us this morning with it. There is none in here who sees a list like this and does not grieve. Lord, we thank you for the ways and the times that so lovingly and patiently and determinedly you lead us to grief now. For the sake of everlasting joy. We thank you this morning for your son. We thank you for his death. that has cleansed his people from sin. But maybe in particular this morning, we thank him and praise him for his life. He who lived this life in the flesh, never succumbing to the sinful works of the flesh. Only ever walking by the Spirit. And who has now taken that gift of the Spirit and poured it out onto his people. Father, protect us as a church family. That we might continue to grow more and more through all the bumps and the bruises. More and more into the image of a people, a family who know their sins and grieve over their sins. But who have been made humble by those revelations and who love one another. Father, be pleased by the life of this church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord has led us and fed us again with his word this morning. Let me invite you to stand and let's respond together to this gift that he's given us. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6 be dismissed this morning with these words. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in His peace.